We've been thinking about the fact that this world, this world system is on a collision course with the judgment of God. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? We all live in this world. We all have jobs in this world. We get educated in this world system. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this way. And one of the things we've been seeing here in 2 Thessalonians is that there is a process, a progression toward that judgment of God. And the Lord gives us various details associated with it, not only in this letter, but in several other parts of the Bible. And so one of the things we've learned this week as we study the word of God is that we want to be careful to take in the whole counsel of God. Because the Lord has chosen, he could have just written a theological treatise and had a section on eschatology, right? And had all the verses associated with the end times all in one little section near the back or something like that. But that's not the way the Lord has chosen to do it. His word is put together in living relationships with living people. Letters, historical books, poetry, proverbs, and prophecy. And so we have to study all of it together, which for most of us takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime of studying the Word of God to really begin to assimilate all the different verses dealing with a particular subject. But it's a great journey to be on that, isn't it? And it's the mind of God, the mind of our Creator and Redeemer that we're studying. Now, most of you who know about human relationships know that, that you enter into a special intimacy or closeness in a human relationship when, you, when your minds connect. You want to be able to, to think like someone you're communicating with, and they'll be able to think like you and process and understand your thinking and your personality, and then to value it and appreciate it, hopefully. That, that's part of human experience. It's a blessing. But my, to enter into that kind of experience and really much more because we're dealing with an eternal person, the living God. That's how we need to come to his word. That's how I try to remind myself every time I come to his word, whether it's a daily devotional reading or a detailed study or a preparation for a message. This is the word of God. This is the heart of God. This is his mind. And he has revealed these things to us. And he wants us to know. Now I want to go to a couple of scriptures. Before we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the first one is in Psalm 10. Back in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 10. We're, we're talking about this world system. And its attitude. Toward God. The world system, what we see portrayed here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is that there are, really, there, are, there are two avenues, there are two approaches to understanding life in this world. And one is atheistic humanism and the other is godliness. Now atheistic humanism has a lot of different branches to it. But basically atheistic humanism which will be culminated in the man of sin who will portray himself to be God and thus fulfill what humanism has always tried to do 
is to displace God completely out of his creation and elevate man to being in the place of God. And our governmental systems think that way. The United Nations thinks that way. Our educational systems, especially at the university level, think that way. And our children are being trained to think that way. And the Bible calls it ungodliness. Because it's just leaving God out. That's what ungodliness means. It's thinking in a way that leaves God out. And that's what David here in Psalm 10 is describing Earth dwellers, people who just live for the earth, earth dwellers. Now, that's a term I'm going to show you that occurs in the book of Revelation. But here, here's their definition. Here's what they are like. He says in verse 2, The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boast of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces whom? Renounces God, renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Whoa. See, this is what characterizes someone who is lost and is proud of being lost not interested in the Bible, not interested in Christianity, not interested in the cross, not interested in godliness. And it's possible, and I think some of our so-called megachurches are headed right for this. Ultimately, this is what they'll get to. Ultimately, there will be so-called Christian churches, I believe, before the rapture even, that will basically be proclaiming the elevation of humanity apart from God. We already know some of them. One of them's in my city. They don't want to talk about the cross. They don't want to talk about blood sacrifice. They don't want to mention the name of Jesus. Well, not far from what's being described here. God is in none of the thoughts. There are a lot of thoughts, but God's not in them. I remember going to university and taking courses on philosophy and psychology because that was before I was saved, and so I was curious, you know. I wanted to learn about these things as well as mathematics and engineering and those kinds of science courses, but, but I wanted to get a broad education. I wanted to be a Renaissance man. I'd gone to high school where, you know, we, we were taught the Jesuits that, you know, you did this full orb picture of life and the Renaissance, you know, that was the ultimate achievement. But the Renaissance is, you know, it means new birth. But it's, it's not the new birth of the Bible. It's a new birth of humanism. That's what the Renaissance was. And you know what created that? Gutenberg's printing press. The printing press changed that. That's what brought the, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and eventually the Industrial Revolution and finally the Information Age that we're in now. And I believe what started in the 90s that we're living in now is another revolution like the printing press was in 1454 that changed everything, brought the Reformation too. I left that out. We're in, it, we're in a, a technology now that is totally different than the printing press. The printing press and paper, books, 
are things of the past now. Not for me. But, uh, you know, because I'm just, I like to hold a book and, and, and touch paper in my hands. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm out of sync with what's happening in our world. Some of you are probably looking at iPads or whatever as you read your Bible. And that's okay. That's, it's a tool. But there will become a time when buying books at a bookstore will be something obsolete, I think. I remember being told back when, when email became a big thing, right? I remember you know, AutoCAD came in in the engineering world in the mid-80s, and we had to learn that, and some of us, we were happy. I was a good draftsman without the computer, and I was pre preferred just using my hands. But, but it was forced. You know, it just became the standard. And then email, and we were told, you'll save paper. You're going to save reams of paper with email. But then we, st we started using more paper than ever because everybody wanted to print their emails. And they had a whole stack of them on the edge. I said, what are those? Oh, well, those are my emails from the last few months. I thought we weren't supposed to have to print them. But everybody wants a written record, you know, in case, you know, liability reasons and all those things. You want to be holding, you know, the computer might fail. I mean, they had seen a few hard drives crash, and they were worried. They didn't want to lose it. So you see, all of that fits in. But this, this thinking, look at verse 11, still in Psalm 10. He has said in his heart, I, now God here, this is the sovereign God of the universe, is moving into the heart of a lost person, and he, see, he sees what's there, and he's telling us. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten, he hides his face, he will never see. That's why, that's why their conscience is hardened. That's why they think they can get away with doing evil things because it, God doesn't see. Bible says God sees everything. But they've managed to put that thinking because they don't believe the Bible is God's word. They put that out of their mind. See, God's not in their thoughts anymore. How about you and me? I challenge you on Mother's Day today. Because the, the sad thing is that this man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he had a mother, didn't he? He's not a robot. He's, he's not Max Headroom. I, I can see I've already, people have already forgotten Max Headroom. That was in the 80s too. It was a computerized robot. Okay. No, the man of sin had a mother. And, and you've got to wonder how that poor mother is going to feel when her son is going to be ultimately the one who elevates himself to the place of God and becomes basically the worst human being that's ever lived, worse than Judas Iscariot even. He'll take the lowest place of the human beings, Satan will be lower, in the judgments of the lake of fire. Because there is a scale of judgments, isn't there? God is just. But over in the book of Revelation, in chapter 11, I told you I would show you this. In the book of Revelation, there's a common phrase that begins. The first time it begins is in chapter 11. Remember the two witnesses that are proclaiming the, the gospel to the nation of Israel during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period? And they experience a rapture at the midpoint. They're raptured, at, but before they're raptured, they're killed by the Antichrist, by the man of sin. 
God lets him kill them. And their dead bodies will lie, verse 8, in the street of the great city, Jerusalem, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And then, verse 9, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And we used to wonder how they would see. But now we know how they're going to see. They're going to see them with their iPhones and, and, and all the devices that are out there now. But here's the verse, verse 10. And it occurs twice in the verse, so the Holy Spirit's kind of drawing our attention to it. And then he'll use this phrase for the rest all the way through chapter 20. And those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers, will rejoice over them. See, these are people that are living totally for the earth, no God in their thoughts. And they'll send gifts to one another because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. See? And then back to the book of Psalms in Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, we see another reference to these who are opposed to God. And God speaks from his throne, verse 1, Psalm 50, the mighty one, God the Lord has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Which is consistent with what we looked at the other night in Isaiah 2. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. We would probably venture to say he's pretty silent today, isn't he? Actually, if we could see things in this world and in, the, in our own lives and culture with the eyes of God, we'd probably see he's, he's not all as silent as we think. He's acting in a lot of different ways that we just don't have the eyes to see it because we're so preoccupied with life in this world. And he says, a fire, a fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. And he says... In verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Talking about animal sacrifices. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. He says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. But to the wicked, verse 16, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you you see how that parallels psalm 10 this is the ungodly this is atheistic humanism and they say oh well we know so much we're so intelligent and we're able to bring world peace without god and they firmly believe that today they talk about it in europe and they talk about it in the upper echelons of government here all the time, and probably in China and Russia too. I'm just not as familiar with it over there. And the Lord says, what right do you have to take my words in your mouth when you hate my instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him. You've been a partaker with adulterers. You have given your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done, he says, and I kept silent. 
You thought that I was altogether like you. See, because the Lord kept silent, and the, war, the Lord kept silent because he's long-suffering, right? Not willing that any should perish. That's why he's not speaking forth in judgment. But the fact that he's silent causes the unbeliever, and particularly the, the wicked who's cast God's word behind him, to think, well, God's just like me. You see what they've done? They define God in their own image instead of allowing God to make them in his image. Just the reversal of the new birth. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes, he says. And then lastly, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 22, the great prince of prophets, powerful chapter, especially on stewardship, and, and, uh, but just verses 12 to 14, the Lord has been speaking through the prophet Isaiah of judgments coming upon the city of Jerusalem because of their rejection of the word of God and the person of the Lord. And in that day, verse 12, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. You see, he was prophesying that, that there was disciplinary judgment coming upon the people of God, and he's calling through the prophets. He's calling for mourning. He's calling for confession. He's calling for humility. He's calling for a brokenness, a broken and contrite spirit, right, that trembles at his word. And what's, it, what's he getting instead? instead? But instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die which is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, of the same type of people. He says, be not deceived, evil company, evil companions, corrupt good manners. You become like who you associate with. Now, I've spoken to some people who claim to be Christians over the last few years, and, and they said, well, you know, you don't need to be so harsh on this judgment thing. I mean, after all, I feel compassion for the lost people, and I almost would really rather be with them. You heard that before? I'm hearing that a lot more, actually, from people who claim to be Christians. In other words, they don't want to be separated unto God. They don't like God. How about you? When it really comes down to it. And maybe you're just religious, and maybe you just come on Sunday because you want to feel good about being religious. But where does God's word stand in your life? Do you hate instruction and cast his words behind you? Or do you bow humbly and adore them and long for his word and long for the truth of it and long to see that it's never misrepresented? See, that's the difference between the two pathways that 2 Thessalonians 2 is bringing us to. So that brings us then, let's come back then to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And what we've seen already, I want to just focus on verses 13 to 17. Don't worry. Just 13 to 17. And then, Lord willing, tonight, chapter 3. And we'll just, we'll just do a cursory view of chapter 3. But there's some core interesting principles there. But before we come to verses 13 to 17, which kind of closes out chapter 2, just as rehearsal, verses 1 through 4 that we looked at in chapter 2 already, and some of this is on tape, I think, I hope, for those who weren't able to be at some of the studies this week. 
But verses 1 through 4, the problem of deception. The people of the Thessalonians, the believers, are concerned. They're worried. Some have come in and taught them that either the tribulation has already come and they're in it, or the kingdom has already come and they're in it, and they're concerned. They're agitated. And they've misrepresented themselves and said that they got this from Paul. And he deals with that in verse 2 and so forth. And, and then in verses 5 through 8, we looked at that. We see the parousia of Christ. And I've emphasized that word on Tuesday night because it is a word that really should, there isn't a translation for it. It's better just to be transliterated. It's translated coming in my Bible and a lot of your Bibles, but it, it's, it's more than just a coming, an instantaneous coming, like if I'm coming to your house or I'm coming into a room. It's the idea of an arrival with an ongoing presence. And we don't really have a good English word for that. We have to put a bunch of words together to say it. And, and so we see the parousia of Christ, and then in verses 9 through 12, the parousia of Satan's man. Satan's man. You notice at the end of verse 8, the brightness of his coming. That's the Lord's. And then in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one. It's the same word in the Greek. It's the parousia, but there are two different parousias here. There's the parousia of Christ, and there's the parousia of the lawless one. And neither one of them are instantaneous. Both of them span over a period of time, see. And just as he mentions the parousia of the lawless one in verse 9, that he's coming according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among what kind of people? Those who perish, the earth dwellers of Revelation 11 to 19. Because they did not receive the love of what? The word of God. The truth. You see why I started with Psalm 10, Psalm 50, Isaiah 22? They didn't receive a love of the truth. They may have been religious people. They may have been moral people. They may have been highly educated people, but they didn't love the truth. They loved unrighteousness instead and pleasures in unrighteousness. And they will fall for this unrighteous deception. Now, Revelation 13 tells us about a statue that the false prophet will erect sometime in the second half of the tribulation period. Probably a parallel to Nebuchadnezzar's one in the plain of Dura. You know, the 90-foot one? Only Nebuchadnezzar's one didn't talk. But the false prophet is going to be enabled. The God, God's going to allow him to have the power to enable this statue to talk. And, and I think that's part of the lie that he's talking about here. And, and that statue is going to tell everybody, the Gestapo and the, and the Antichrist, where the, where the believers are. To go find them, to get them. And so there's a lot more to what's going on in this whole tribulation period. It's not a Sunday school picnic, beloved. Someone says, yeah, well, I go through tribulations too. Yeah, you don't go through the great one, though. The Bible makes a distinction. And I'm sure glad I'm not going through the great one. Maybe you'd rather go through the great one. You know, I've talked to some, it's almost like they wanted to go. And maybe they should. You know, I mean, if they're, if they're so, but, but I'm, looking for the, I'm looking for the Lord myself. 
You know, it's interesting. If our Lord wanted the church to go through the tribulation period, there's not one word of warning to tell us how to get ready for it. Did you notice that? Have you ever checked that out in your Bible? And yet, he has a warning to Israel, remember? He says to Israel, when you see, then flee, right? When you see the abomination of desolation, then flee. He doesn't say that to the church. To the church, he says, just continue your testimony till I come and be looking for me. It's a totally different hope, you might say, put out there. I think we, we want to be careful not to neglect that. All in righteous deception among those who perish, verse 10, because they did not receive the love of the truth. Why? That they might be saved. So whose fault is it that they're not saved, beloved? Don't blame God. Don't bring in that Calvinistic stuff and blame God. I'm not buying it. Because the word of God doesn't buy it. And we'll see that right down here in verse 13 when he defines what biblical election looks like. It's amazing how the Bible just defines itself so clearly, the words it uses. If we just stay with the Bible, we'll be okay. And for this reason, verse 11, God will send them strong delusion. This is a parallel to what we see in the book of Exodus with regard to Pharaoh. And, and the Lord, through the apostle Paul in Romans 9, will set that up. He will say, Pharaoh is a paradigm. Look at him. He's a paradigm of God working with one individual human soul. And it's spread over about five or six chapters, right, in Exodus. And Pharaoh thinks he's going to be cute and play around with the word of God and the, and the prophecy from Moses and Aaron. And, and, you know, he lets them, he says, well, I'll let them go. Then I won't let them go. Then I'll let them go here. Then I'll let the men go. Then I'll let them go without this and that. And they're just going to play with God, see? And each time he's hardening his heart. And maybe he realizes it and maybe he doesn't. It doesn't seem to care. But then eventually after about the fourth plague, right, God begins to harden his heart. That's what he's talking about here. I don't know if you've ever been around someone that God has hardened their heart. And we can't see the heart, so we don't know for sure. But that's a sobering thing, isn't it? When a human being plays with God's grace and his love so much that eventually you can't get through. You can speak the truth to him until you're blue in the face. And you're not going to get through to that heart anymore. It's calloused over. Paul talks about it, right? In 2 Timothy. About a heart that is seared, like with a hot iron. A seared heart, that means all the nerve endings are dead. There's no sensitivity anymore. None. Hitler had a heart like that, for sure. He had a soul. He had a spirit. He had a heart, but it was hardened. So that he defined evil as good and good as evil, see? And was convinced with a strong will behind it. And he never deterred from his pathway until he committed suicide, as far as we know. See? You may have someone like that in your family. I hope not. I've got some unbelievers in my family. I don't, I, you know, I don't presume that anyone has a heart like that because we can't see the heart. But God knows who they are. And it's a sobering thing. He'll send them a strong delusion so that they should believe the lie. They're not going to believe the truth anymore. They're going to believe the lie, see? 
that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So you see how the contrast between truth and error is all the way through this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It began with deception there in the first few verses, and here we are still dealing with truth and error. Two pathways, atheistic humanism or godliness. Which one do you want to be on? Which one do I want to be on? And then he closes in verses 13 to 17 with the promise of life. Now he comes back to the Thessalonians and basically comes back to where he began in chapter 1, verse 3. Remember he said, we are bound in verse 3 of chapter 1 to give thank, to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because of your faith and love and so forth and your perseverance and tribulations. Well, now he's coming back to the same thing, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren. And then look at the phrase, beloved by the Lord. What a contrast with verses 10 through 12 right above it. I want to be in this group. Brethren, beloved by the Lord in a special relationship with God. And, and a brethren beloved by the Lord love his word. Don't like to see it distorted. Uh-uh. No, they don't like to see his character misrepresented. No, uh-uh. If that doesn't bother you, you don't know love. <laughs> you say you love your wife and, and you let people demean her character in front of you. That's not love. I don't know what you've got, but it ain't love. Ain't nobody going to say anything bad about my mama. I know that. Even my brother-in-law, I had to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him one time. He was speaking disrespectful. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now you cross the line. You don't disrespect my mama. And I hope we got some men still around, right, that are willing to stand up for their wives and stand up for their daughters and stand up for their mamas. But that's, that's changing. And, it, and it's a lament to the sisters, and I can understand why. Beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you. From the beginning, which beginnings? Well, some of the commentaries, you know, the ones that lean Calvinistically will say, well, this has got to be the same beginning as in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the earth. Well, keep reading, and I think you'll see that it can't mean that, because look what he says. He says, God from the beginning chose you for salvation, and then he gives an instrumental word, dia, through, by means of. And he gives two things. By means of what? God's side, man's side. You see the two sides there? Oh, man, that, so Calvin's wrong and Armenia, Arminius is wrong. You know what I mean? Just read the scriptures, brothers. He says, God's side is sanctification by the Spirit. Man's side is belief in the truth. Now, did you believe in the truth before the foundation of the world? You tell me. You, you tell me, you who are Christians here, that you believed in Christ before the foundation of the world, before the cross even happened, before the Lord Jesus ever came to this earth. That's when you believed in him? No, I'll never believe you. You believed in him at a point in time at your conversion. So from the beginning, he's talking about the beginning of your Christian life, isn't it? And there was a work of God in your heart because God always takes the initiative Calvinists are right about that. 
And the Spirit of God draws us. John chapter 6 talks about the Father draws us, the Son draws us. In Matthew 11, the Spirit draws us. In 1 Corinthians 2, the entire Godhead is involved in drawing us to the truth of the gospel and God's love for us. And then the Spirit of God, according to 1 Corinthians 2, is illuminating us to understand because we can't understand the gospel apart from the help of God, even if you've got a Bible. You need the Spirit's work. That's where prayer comes in, right? And I believe that everyone that's saved had somebody praying for them. I know who was praying for me. And it was a godly mother too, but not mine. A friend's mother, as it turned out. But she just went to be with the Lord a few months ago. And I don't know why she cared about little old me, but I'm sure glad she did. And she was persistent too, because I wasn't cooperating I wanted to get away. She didn't give up. I think the Lord put that in her heart for some reason. See, and, and, and thank God for the, the people that God has used to draw us. And thank God for the circumstances he's used to draw us. If whatever evil circumstance in our lives was used to bring us to salvation and, and faith in Christ, for us it becomes a good thing, doesn't it? If it caused us to be broken to the point of stop trusting in ourselves and elevating man and turning to God, then that's a good thing, isn't it? To go from eternal death to eternal life, that's a good thing, isn't it? So sanctification by the Spirit. But then, then that, word, that word and, you know, here we go. Both and, not either or. See, we have to respond, belief in the truth. And there comes the truth again, the same truth that those earth dwellers that were perishing in the previous verses wouldn't submit to. And we're living in a culture that is increasingly not submitting to the word of God. I don't know if you noticed that. Thank God we still have Christian radio stations that are out there. I support one. Maybe you do. And we thank the Lord for him. Thank God K-Love was on the side of a car of the Daytona 500. They're sponsoring Michael McDowell and some of the races and that because it's getting that before people. And there's a great gospel message in that radio station. I listen to it in Georgia. I listen to it in Louisiana. I've listened to it in Alabama when you're traveling, you know, and down here. See, getting the message out, the love of the truth. But there's a day coming. The Lord Jesus said... Work while it's day, because night's coming. Well, the day's far spent, beloved. If it was far spent when Paul wrote Romans, it's really far spent now. The night is at hand when no man can work, because God's going to let Antichrist shut it all down, see? Only for a time, and under God's control, but it's all part of the parousia. It's all part of the process, see? But then he goes on to say, to which this salvation in verse 13, verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel. You see, he'll, he'll pronounce the Paul, the apostle Paul will pronounce an anathema in Galatians 1 on any false gospel. And I'm sorry if that offends you. Because it does. It offends some of our young people. They say, well, you know, we live, there are no absolutes, we're told, in school, and, and we don't like, like this idea of just being one gospel. There's got to be more than one. Not according to the Bible. 
And I hope you're submitting to it because your eternal destiny is at stake by how you respond to this gospel, Paul's gospel, the apostles' gospel, the New Testament gospel, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the contrast between verse 14 and verse 10, 11, and 12? What is it that the believer who loves the truth, who's been sanctified by the Spirit and believed in the gospel, what is their future to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? What's the future of those who want to follow the working of Satan and be deceived by him? There are those who perish. There are those who will be condemned. Right? You see the difference? And the pronouns jump right out at us. You know, the they and them and then the you, those are pronouns that are different, right? So there's a difference between those who are believers and brought into the family of God and those who are outside the family of God. God wants us to know that. He wants us to know that he spent, he spent a great cost to separate us unto himself through the gospel, through faith in his son, through the discipleship work that he's doing, through the word of God and all the instruments that he uses. That's what sanctification of the Spirit means, doesn't it? It means the whole work of the Spirit, which begins in the preliminary work to conversion, to conversion, to sanctification, that is being conformed to the image of Christ now, and then ultimately to glorification. That's all the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification means being set apart for God. Like the temple, like the instruments in the temple, like the priesthood. Are you set apart for God today? You know, we think on Mother's Day of some dear women, and we had some brought to our attention. And the one I had in mind was, the, I think, the last one that Brother Jamel referred to in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. You know, Sister Hannah. And how, you know, you think, you sisters think, well, you know, it's a man's world and we, we can't do anything. And, you know, there's nothing, no impact we can make. No, no, no. If you believe that, you're not reading your Bible. There are loads of women in the Bible that had a huge impact. And Hannah herself is responsible for changing the whole direction of the nation of Israel. Did you know that? The revival that occurs in chapters 7 through 12 under Samuel would never have occurred if Hannah hadn't given herself to the Lord first and asked for a male child who could be a deliverer. That's what she wanted. She wasn't just thinking of herself. She was concerned about the whole nation and the apostasy of it. So what about you mothers? Are you concerned about the apostasy in the church? Are you concerned about the apostasy in the world in which we live? You can make a difference by training up a young person to be, pre be prepared to be used of God as a vessel of honor. And that's a great privilege. And God knows exactly who you are and what you're doing. Maybe the rest of us don't. But God knows. And he'll reward it. So just closing out there in verse 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father. This is interesting. He inverts the order here in the representation of the Godhead, right? He mentions the Lord first. Usually he mentions God 
the Father first, but he's emphasizing our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because he's just been talking about the parousia of Christ in contrast to the parousia of the man of sin. So he says, Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation, encouragement, and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Establish you. He doesn't say anything about where you need to run to hide from Antichrist here. He says, be diligent in the work. Christians are to be busy people in the word and in the work. And that sets up what he's going to talk about in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he's going to talk, there were some there that were loafers, that were being a drain on the assembly. And he's going to give the maximum, you don't work, you don't eat. And we teach this in all the churches, Paul said. So we'll see some of that tonight. It gets very practical of the situation, which I think, too, is another affirmation. They believed in the pre-tribulational rapture. They thought the Lord was going to come any time. And so they were just waiting on the roof in their pajamas. I don't know. But, but they, and the Lord says, no, there's a work to do still. And there still is. There's a work to do. We participate with the Lord. According to how he's gifted us, according to how he called us, according to how he equips us and guides us. Amen? The hope of the gospel. Two pathways laid out here, just like throughout the whole Bible. And I close with that thought. I, I remember hearing the testimony of, of a man who used to be a priest in the New Age movement. Way up in the higher echelons of the New Age movement. And I would have thought, when I hear his testimony, I would have thought, this, this is a guy that's never going to get saved. <laughs> He's not going to get saved. This, how, how could God ever reach this person? He knew all the details, was enmeshed in all the philosophy of it. Well, the Lord saved him. And he left it. And now he's traveling around the country speaking in high schools and colleges, wherever they'll let him and telling young people about the dangers of the New Age movement and that it is real and that the contact with the supernatural that they talk about is real and that the witchcraft and the Wicca and all the other stuff they do is real and they do make contact with the dead, necromancy, and they do receive demon possessions. It's real. And I've met people who were demon-possessed by that stuff. And it's a sobering thing to see. But none of that, that all pales compared to the man of sin. He's going to be so clever. If you were voting, you'd probably vote for him. He's going to be charismatic. He's not going to have a red tail and a pitchfork and horns. He's probably going to be Hollywood, model attractive, great speaking voice, well-dressed, that's all part of the deception, beloved. You're protected, and I'm protected when we stay in the word of God. Here's our protection right here from the counterfeit. So, Father, we thank you for the saints here at Boulevard Chapel. We thank you for the testimony that's born here for you and your precious son, the Lord Jesus, Lord. And we pray that the manifestation and teaching of truth in lives and in the teaching that's done will continue and grow and abound and that the 
steadfastness, the establishment in the truth and in the word of God will grow stronger and stronger as we see the day approaching. Father, thank you for the privilege of allowing us to study your word this morning and to remember our Lord Jesus and to celebrate Mother's Day and the great gift that mothers are. And we pray, Lord, your blessing on the mothers and on all of us as we go. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you will warm our hearts again afresh with your great love that you've manifested at Calvary as we do pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.